All right. Before we return to 1 Peter tonight, I want to remind you of something that he wrote in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and, and I've shared this before, but it, it's a timely reminder. In 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter wrote about some of Paul's writings. And he described some of Paul's writings with this statement. He said, regarding Paul, he said, and I quote, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. 2 Peter 3.16 Talking about the Apostle Paul, Peter said his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Have you ever heard the statement, that's the pot calling the kettle black? Or it takes one to know one? Uh, We might say that about Peter's letters, that his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Tonight's passage is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to interpret. It's one of the hardest things to understand. Um, In fact, one of the commentators uh, I was reading last night said, and I quote, he said, this paragraph is notoriously difficult and controversial. Noted Bible scholar Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, it's one of the most difficult portions in the New Testament. And over the years, over the centuries, good and godly interpreters have wrestled with the verses we're going to study tonight. And so I'll confess to you already that we're not going to solve every problem. We're not going to answer every question. You're not going to leave here with a clear-headed, I get it, I understand. But hopefully we might leave here with a little bit better understanding of this text. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. I want to start with verse 18, which is a, a beautiful verse. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what he says. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. By the way, if you're taking notes tonight, and I didn't even give you a note sheet because I thought, how do I even outline this? How do I put it in note sheet form for your benefit? And so I'm going to give you the text we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm going to give you a title if you're taking notes. And so the title that I've given this study is Focusing Fully on Jesus. If you're taking notes, Focusing Fully on Jesus. And the text is going to be 1 Peter 3 verse 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So we start with verse 18, which is a beautiful verse, and it really is not controversial, nor is it really hard to understand. Uh, Let's just look at it in the context. Verse 17 uh, speaks about those who suffer for doing good. Let me remind you what we talked about last time. Verse 17, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So the context is this idea of suffering for doing good. And then we go from verse 17 to verse 18, and Peter presents Jesus as the perfect example of someone who suffered unjustly. That Jesus is the perfect example of someone who who suffered for doing good and yet obeyed God completely. Here's how he describes it. Verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous 
for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. Look closely at how his suffering is described in this verse. It's a very clear, concise statement of the gospel. It's a beautiful description of the gospel. It says Christ died for sins. And there's not one sin you could ever say except for this one. He died for sins. It says that he died for sins once for all. Now you remember in the Old Testament sacrificial system that they would year after year have to keep bringing these sacrifices. But Christ died once for all. He also died in the place of sinners. And there's a beautiful phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then this phrase, and he died to bring us to God. In other words, you might want to put this down in your notes or in the Bible. We could never get to God on our own. None of us could. We don't have the capacity to get to God on our own. So Jesus Christ died, the Bible says, for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, as you and me, to bring you to God. Because we could not get to God on our own. Or to say it another way, we had a need, our sins. He made the complete payment his death in our place. It was an all-sufficient payment because it says once for all. And the outcome is we have direct access to God. Now, that's very plain and very clear. Those are the facts of the, of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't get very much clearer than that. But the next sentence, the next sentence is where things begin to get cloudy and confusing. The second half of verse 18 says this. He was put to death in the body. We understand that. That's the cross. He was put to death in the body, but a lot, but made alive by the Spirit, it says in the NIV. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. So, that's the sentence where things begin to get cloudy. That's the sentence where things begin to get confusing. And yet it's something very interesting. It's, it's the idea of what happened on Saturday. If Jesus died on Friday and was resurrected on Sunday... Theoretically, what happened on Saturday? What happened to Jesus while He lay in the grave? Where did His Spirit go when He died? This is what Peter is addressing. Um, now, most of... It's interesting. Look up here for a moment. Most of the New Testament teachers and writers, when they're talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection, that they talk about, of course, the cross. They talk about the, the burial. And they talk about the resurrection. And most of them, that's all they talk about. They don't talk about Saturday. Or, to put it another way, they don't talk about what happened while he was in the grave. But Peter does. Led by the Holy Spirit of God, Peter decides to write about the work of Jesus while he was in the grave uh, between his death and resurrection. And the first phrase in this text creates a problem for us in verse 18. I, I, I mentioned it, but let's go back to verse 18. I'll show you what I'm talking about. 
He was put to death, the middle of verse 18, he was put to death in the body. We, we can get that. Here's where it gets a little complicated. But made alive by the Spirit, it says in the NIV. Somebody have a different translation where it says a different, something different. Anybody? The second half of that verse. Made alive in the Spirit, okay? Made alive in the Spirit. Made alive in the spiritual realm. Quickened by the Spirit. Okay, so here's the issue. And I started to bring my board and and try to draw it all out for you. And it's like, well, that'll get confusing real quick. I'm not sure I've got enough space on the board anyway. Uh, so, so let me just try to walk you through this. I'm going to go slow. Uh, here's the issue. Is the contrast between flesh and spirit, in other words, the flesh of Jesus and His spirit, just like you've got flesh and you've got a spirit. So is the contrast between flesh and spirit, or is it a contrast between His flesh and the Holy Spirit? See, part of the problem is that in the Greek manuscripts, there were no capital letters. Look, you study the Greek language, there was no capital letters. So the the context dictates whether it's talking about the spirit of a person or whether it's talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, I looked up three different translations and just listened to these translations. See if, see if you can hear a difference. The NIV, which is the one I preach from, the one I study from, the NIV says, He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, capital S. By the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. New American Standard says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, small s. Let me say that again. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, that is, in His Spirit. Or the Living Bible is even clearer as far as their translation. But through His body, His died. Let me try that again. But through His body, He died, and His Spirit lived on. I'm sorry, but though His body died, His Spirit lived on. So... The debate about, among scholars is, is this talking about, when it talks about spirit, is it talking about His Spirit? Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Um, lots of scholars, and I'm not, quite honestly, I'm not exactly sure where I land on this. I will tell you that uh, it, some scholars, quite, quite a few probably, think that basically in the Spirit would be, in His Spirit would be a more accurate translation and that would indicate that uh, during, his, during his death, it was his spirit that went to preach to the spiritual realm. That makes sense? That it was, during his death, his spirit went to preach to the, those in the spiritual realm and the spiritual world. Well, you say, well, why does it even matter? Because it's linked to what Jesus did on, on Saturday between his death and his resurrection look at verse 19 let's start at verse 18 again 
and then we'll continue through verse 19. I, I know this is confusing, but try to stay with me in the text. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive either by the Holy Spirit or was made alive again in His Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Again, the Living Bible translates it this way. But though His body died, His Spirit lived on, and it was in the Spirit He visited the spirits in prison and preached to them. So that brings up another question. It kind of opens up a whole other can of worms. And the question would be, who are these spirits that he visited? What does that mean, that he visited the spirits? Who are they? And the second question would be, what did he preach to them about? What was it he was saying to these spirits? So let's deal with those, those two questions. First of all, who were these spirits? I'm going to give you four possibilities if you're taking notes. I'm going, and I'll tell you which one I think it is, but these are four possibilities. Three of them, I think, are pretty legitimate possibilities. One of them, I don't think, is a legitimate possibility, yet it is out there, and so I want to at least make you aware of it. Who were these spirits? Well, read verse 20 and 21 again. Or verse 19 through 21. Though, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. That's interesting. So who are these spirits he went to preach to? Here's four possibilities. Number one. One option is that Christ went down to Hades, not hell, but that Christ went down to Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. All right? It's considered to be the place where, where it's a temporary holding place, if you will, until the final judgment for those who have died without Christ. So, so here's the theory. Christ went down to Hades during the interval between His death and resurrection and preached to the spirits of Noah's contemporaries. I'll say that again. That during his, between His death and resurrection... This option says that Christ went down to Hades, not to hell, but He went down to Hades, the realm of the dead, and He preached to the spirits of Noah's contemporaries. And that's why it refers to Noah here and the people that He preached to. So that's option number one. Option number two. Now this is going to get a little... How shall I say it? Um... Uh, Gonna be a little unusual, but but you just follow the scripture with me, okay? Number two, here's the second option. Some say that these spirits are the rebellious angels or demons who lusted after the females in Genesis six. Prior to the flood, it talks about these fallen angels or demons uh, and the relationships or the potential to have relationship with with women and. Uh, some say that, that they were consigned by God to prison in advance of the final judgment. And that Jesus, during uh, that time between His death and His resurrection, he, he went to preach to these rebellious angels or demons. Let me show you something interesting in the book of Jude. Go over to the right to the book of Jude. I, uh, Lord willing, I, I think maybe this fall, I'm going to be preaching through the short book of Jude. I, uh, it's at least on my calendar right now. And there's, there's an interesting verse in Jude 6. 
Jude refers to and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Kind of sounds like that option, doesn't it? That the spirits referred to in 1 Peter 3 are the rebellious angels or demons who lusted after the females in Genesis 6. They're consigned, confined to prison in advance of the final judgment. That's option number two. Option number three some say that these spirits are the souls of un, I'm sorry, the souls of Old Testament believers that Jesus liberated and brought with him to heaven. The souls of the Old Testament believers who Jesus liberated from Hades and took with him to heaven. That he went there, he kind of opened the gates and he took the 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 believers who on who were on that side of Hades and he opened the gates and he took them when he ascended back to heaven. Uh, the fourth option, this is the one that I really don't believe this is accurate, but I'm going to at least tell you about it in case you've read or, or had these thoughts. The fourth option is that some say that these spirits are lost sinners in hell to whom God or Jesus went to preach the good news of salvation to give them a second chance at salvation. I, I don't believe that one. I, don't, I think that's foreign to Scripture. Uh, the Bible is very clear in, in Hebrews 9.27 that people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. I don't think there's any second chances once you've died. I don't think the Bible teaches anything about a second chance. And so I, I do not give credence to this uh, option uh, that, that Jesus went in to preach to the lost sinners in hell and gave them another chance uh, to be saved. I, I don't think that you find that teaching in Scripture. But the other three that I gave you are legitimate options. I'll tell you who I think these, these spirits are. I, I do indeed think that this text is saying that sometime between His death and resurrection, that Jesus visited the realm of Hades, again, not hell, but the realm of Hades, where He delivered a message to, to uh, spirit beings who were probably the fallen angels uh, that we, re we read about in Jude 6. Uh, these fallen angels were somehow connected to the flood. And Jesus, I believe, preached to these fallen angels. And one of the reasons I say that is because, it, look at the text with me, and I know we're getting kind of deep in the weeds here, but, but look at, for just a moment. It says, verse 19, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, if you look in the New Testament, that word spirits always refers to either, uh, uh, it's always spiritual beings. It never refers to humans. It's always demons or angels, demons or fallen angels. It never refers to humans. And, and so to be consistent, if you look at it through Scripture, to be consistent, the text seems to be describing Jesus preaching to these fallen angels. Uh, and what, Well, what did he preach? That's the second question. If he did go during the time that he was in the grave, if his spirit did go to Hades and preach to these fallen angels, what did he preach to them? What was the message? Well, again, if you look at the text with me, uh, verse 19 it says, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in heaven. Uh, that word preached is a different word than preaching the gospel. 
That word preach simply means to declare, to proclaim, to declare. Uh, So Peter doesn't say exactly what Jesus preached, but more than likely, this is just speculation, he probably proclaimed his victory and their defeat. And and I've got a scripture that I think supports that. Colossians chapter 2. If you go there, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. At the cross, Jesus defeated all the demonic forces of hell. And when He lay in the grave, His body lay in the grave, His spirit went to Hades, I believe, to proclaim His victory and their defeat. That He proclaimed His victory over them, over death, hell, and the grave. The resurrection and the ascension would be further proof of His victory over sin and death and Satan. And in fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, it kind of hints at that. The last verse says, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, watch this, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. That verse would, would, would hint that perhaps what He was doing when He went down into Hades was to declare His victory and their defeat. And Peter ends that by saying, and all angels and all authorities and all powers are in submission to Him. Now, the final intriguing aspect of this text uh, is that Peter then uses Noah and he starts talking about baptism. This is another head-scratcher. Okay? Let's just read the text and see what he has to say. Well, I'll tell you what. Let let me stop for a second. Boy, this is real dangerous. But do you have any questions? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's almost splitting hairs, isn't it? Because there is a verse that refers to uh, the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. So it really is kind of splitting hairs. And that's why, that's why I never really came down on one side or the other with that. I just tried to give you some options there. But it, it really is a sense of both in a way. Yes. Right. Yeah, uh, Greg, that is definitely one option. Uh, and again, you, you get into debate about what does it mean that he descended. One option is what you've just said, that he descended to the Hades, to the realm of the dead. The other two options regarding that particular verse is that he descended to the grave or simply that he descended to, in, his, in his incarnation, he descended to the earth. And so, so there's even debate about what that verse means. But some people do tie that verse to 1 Peter and say these things are related. And very well may be. It very well may be. Yeah. All right. 
Right. Declared his victory over them. Right. Well, that goes to, to the verse that, that Greg is, has been talking or was talking about. In the Old Testament saints, uh, and this is where I wish I had the board, but Hades was, is the realm of the dead. One part of it was, was the, for the, uh, uh, the demons and those who did not believe in Christ. The other part was sometimes called paradise. And so one theory is that when Christ descended, that he set them free and he took them to heaven the Old Testament saints, that is. He took them to heaven during his ascension. I think, again, that is a very legitimate uh, proposal. For us, yeah, yeah, yeah. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Paul's very clear to be. For us, we don't go to Hades. We, our spirit immediately goes to be in his presence. Now, Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, let, let me make one clarification about not that you've raised the question, but just to make sure you understand. When I'm talking about Hades, I'm not talking about hell. Hades is the realm of the dead where the spirits are, are right now being held, the spirits who have not trusted Christ. Hell is the place of final punishment. The place of final judgment. Revelation, I think it's chapter 20, talks about that. That hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. But, but it was, it's at the end of the world that hell will basically be opened. And, and Hades will be emptied and they will be put into hell. Uh, so I just want to make that clear. That, that's, here's what I want you to understand. As, my under, as I understand scripture, Jesus never went to hell. Nor would he do so. Hell was intended for the devil and for his angels. And so Jesus never went to hell, but he perhaps very well did go to Hades to speak to, to the fallen angels and declare his victory and their defeat. All right, let me go to the let me go, let me move on. Uh, if you have questions afterwards, I'll be happy to uh, talk to you about that. But I, I need to talk about this aspect of Noah and the, and baptism. Um, it, it's, it's a great point. It's just a little confusing when you first read it. So I'm going to start at verse 18 and read all the way through. <clears throat> for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. So, that's an indication of what you were talking about. These are disobedient spirits that he speaks to. Not, not Old Testament believers in this case. Now, watch this though. Watch how this turns now. He says, verse 20, Who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. In other, in other words... The thing that brought condemnation on the world was the, also the very thing that brought salvation to Noah and his family. The water. 
Now, of course, there was a boat involved in Ark, but this is the point. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And, he says, verse 21, this is where it gets interesting. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, don't, don't even read beyond that for a moment. Just think what he's saying. This water, just like water was used in the judgment, the condemnation of the world, and yet it, it was that same water that, through which Noah was saved, Peter says, by the way, that's a symbol, that's a type of baptism. It's a unique thing that, that he says here. So, so let's keep reading. Verse 21, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And then to clarify, he's not talking about the act of baptism saving you. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission. So let's talk real briefly about Noah before we finish. Noah, of course, was a preacher of righteousness during a very hard time. Peter makes the point to say, how many, you talk to me for a minute, how many people were saved in the ark? Peter tells you right there, how many people were saved? Eight. How long did Noah preach? You remember? How long? 120 years. And after 120 years of declaring righteousness, after 120 years of preaching as much as he could while he was also building an ark, after 120 years, the only people who turned and had faith in the message that he was declaring were he and his family. If you want to know how perverse the day was, after 120 years of declaring the potential of salvation and God's coming judgment, everybody turned a deaf ear to Him for 120 years, except His own family. Now, Peter is using Noah to say to the early Christians that he was writing to, he was using that as an example to say, listen, just like it was difficult for Noah to live for God for those 120 years, just like it was difficult for him, and he likely experienced persecution, he likely had people making fun of him, he likely had people accusing him and cursing him, he likely was, was not easy to be a follower of God, just like Noah, so it will be for you. Don't be surprised that it's difficult for you. To live out your faith. In fact, I want you to go real quickly to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 39. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would, what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. 
This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Peter was saying to to the people in the first century, listen, you know your Old Testament, and you know what happened in the days of Noah, and that's going to be repeated one day when the Lord comes back. Noah kept doing the will of God even though no one else around him was. Noah kept trusting God even though no one else around him was. Peter saw the flood as a picture of the Christian's experience in his day. Especially the experience of baptism. And so he summarizes it this way. Let let, let me just walk through the text with you. Here's what he says. Um, Verse 21, And this water... Well, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 20. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. There is no way that dipping your body in water is going to remove your sins. There's no way that putting water on your body is going to remove your sins. That's what he's talking about. Listen, only the blood of Jesus can take away your sins. Baptism can never do that. Peter's not making the case that your sins can be washed away by baptism. No, it's just the opposite. Peter's saying, it, no, it is not the water. There's nothing special about the water that's going to take your sins away. But talk to me for a moment. Why do you think why do you think that Peter, as he was writing this, why do you think that he linked baptism to the flood? I'm going to give you what I think is the answer, but it's kind of an unusual thing. Why would he link baptism to the flood? I'll give you a hint. I want you to think about what baptism was in that day. In that day, baptism stood for something. In that day, baptism was um, costly for a lot of people. And in some nations of the world, it is even today. In some nations of the world today, if a Christian, if a person becomes a Christian, so long as they just profess faith, they might be ridiculed, but, but, but that's the extent of it. But, when they take it beyond their profession and when they actually are baptized, in some countries of the world today, that's when they lose their family. Or that's when they lose their job. Or that's when their life is threatened. Or that's when they have to move to another place. It's not the profession of faith. Yeah, the profession of faith will get them, their family will be angry at them. But it's when they declare publicly their faith through the act of baptism. That's when the persecution really starts. And Peter's linking, Peter's saying to these people in his day, they knew that following the Lord in believers' baptism sometimes was at a great cost. And Peter was saying, well, let me tell you about somebody in the Old Testament. Remember Noah? Obeying God was at a great cost for him too. Watch this, listen. But God vindicated Noah. And you stay faithful. And God will vindicate you one day too. 
And he uses Christ at the very first of this as that same example. It was costly for Christ to obey God. Extremely costly, of course. But God vindicated Jesus when He brought Him up out of the grave. Just like God vindicated Noah when He saved him in the ark. And it will be costly. He was saying to the first century Christians, it will be costly if you're baptized and you profess your faith in Christ. But God will vindicate you one day. So stay faithful to your Savior. Because, the last verse. Verse 21 and verse 22. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation, salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not simply through the act of baptism. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. God will vindicate. Because everything is now in submission to His Son. Amen? So stay faithful. Keep walking with Jesus. And though it may cost you, you stay faithful. Now I'm not, the, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I'm going to close with this statement. I really believe in the next three to five years the Lord doesn't come back. I really believe it's going to be more costly than we ever imagined to be a Christian. I really believe that. I'll give you one example. Um, if it is true if it ends up, and, and it's true, that Roe v. Wade is overturned, I think it's going to become more costly for Christians to take a stand for godly principles. I think what you're going to see in the coming days, and I'm not just talking about that one issue, I'm just talking about opposition against Christians. I think what you're going to see in the coming days is a ramping up of hostility towards those who walk with Christ. Towards those who have biblical principles. I think there is, there is occurring now and it's going to increase this ramping up of hostility against those who claim Christ as Savior. Those who stand on biblical principles. So the word that Peter has here is not just for the first century, it's for our century as well. Keep following Christ. You keep being obedient to Him. And it may be costly and it may be painful, but God will vindicate you one day. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank You for the timely word and thank You for giving us the hope that we have in Christ. Reminding us that He was and is victorious over all the demons of hell. That He was and is victorious over our eternal enemy. And He is at the right hand of you right now with all angels and powers and authorities in submission to Him. We thank You for our Lord and our Savior. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.